Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have none other than Michael Lewis. And let me tell you, I had a blast talking to him. He is just eloquent and charming and full of great stories. Uh, It was, if you can imagine how much fun it would be to sit in a room and just chew the fat with Michael Lewis over all his books. Yes, it was that much fun. So rather than me give you a whole song and dance about his background, because you already know his background, you've already read most of his books, I'm just going to shut up and with no further ado, my conversation with Michael Lewis. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is none other than Michael Lewis. He is the author of such best-selling financial stories as Moneyball, The Big Short, Flash Boys. Uh, Most recently, he wrote The Undoing Project, a a story about uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, the people who essentially invented the field of behavioral economics. Um, I could talk about your resume forever, but let's jump right into this. Michael Lewis, welcome to Bloomberg. Uh, Pleasure to be back here. So let, let's jump right into a little bit about your background. So you, you come out of the London School of Economics. You get a job at Salomon Brothers in the 1980s. The market's on fire. Sally's one of the hottest firms on the street. And you just walk away from that. Uh, what sort of pushback did you get from your friends and family about, yeah, making a ton of money, but this sort of stuff is not for me? It was a funny situation because through a, a lot of accident, I'd had some success at Solomon Brothers. I got there and um, I was taken uh, under the wing of a big hedge fund manager in Europe, which is where I was based. Mm. Did all his business through me, so I looked like a very profitable salesperson. I right. was I was the derivatives person at Solomon Brothers. Oh, I, really? Yeah, I was the I was the arm of John Merriweather's desk uh-huh. uh, in London, and my job was to explain options and futures to everybody because they were new. And uh, and dream up new kinds of securities, which I did, and sell whatever I could sell to whoever I talked to, and uh, and that's the guy who eventually writes the big short. That's the guy who eventually writes the big short. Pretty pretty ironic. Yeah, no, it was it was um, extremely useful that training. I'm sure in 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 coming to t- grips with collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps and all the rest. But what so what happened was I um, I knew going in that I wanted to write for a living. I had no idea if it was even possible. I was I was writing magazine articles while I was at Solomon Brothers. Right. Where were you publishing? Um, FT and places like I, that? I, or? The Economist published the first, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them. Right. And with no byline. But then I'd, I'd bundle up the clips and I'd send them off to editors and say, I actually wrote this. You can call this guy and check. Right. And Michael Kinsley, who was the editor of The New Republic. Oh, sure. And Amity Schleiss, who was uh, then the op-ed editor of the Wall Street Journal Europe, mm-hmm. uh, encouraged me. And, an, and a magazine in England, too. So I had several outlets. Uh, and the stuff started getting attention. Uh, the stuff with my byline got me in trouble. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I wrote- a, At work. 
Well, yeah, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal uh, that ended up being reprinted in the U.S. Journal on the op-ed page that's, that argued that investment bankers were overpaid. And at the bottom, <laughs> it, it's at the bottom, it said, Michael Lewis is an associate at Solomon Brothers in London. And when I came in the next day, yeah. uh, the guy who ran Solomon Brothers Europe was ashen-faced sitting at my desk. And, and, he, and he said, I've been on the phone all night with members of the board's, uh, board of directors. This is, uh, the thing's being reprinted across the country. Right. And, and we can't... Can't have. He was a bit pleading. It was. It was more in sorrow than in anger. It was. You can't go in the Wall Street Journal and say you're with us and that we're overpaid. And, and I said. And I said, well, it's true. And he said, it is true. But you know, you know. But shh. But shh. And, he, and, and then he said, he said, is there any? He said, could you just? You got to stop writing. And I said, I, I, I'm not going to do that. And he said. He was great, actually. It was Charlie McFay is his name. He was a wonderful guy. And he says, well, is there any way? Um, you could do it um, under a different name so that nobody connects it back to us. And I said, fine. And I wrote under the name Diana Bleeker, which was my mother's Come on, main name. Yes. That's hilarious. And my, my to finish the story, uh, I st- I, I'm writing under Diana Bleeker, and Diana Bleeker publishes something in the New Republic. And I get a call from Chevy Chase's dad, who's an editor at Simon & Schuster. And he says, I figured out you're Diana Bleeker, uh, <laughs> and uh, you should write a book. And I thought, oh, my God, someone will, will, will pay me to write a book. And it wasn't much. Uh, but that at that moment, I went in and I said to the my bosses, I'm out of here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a writer. And they thought I was insane. That, I didn't answer your question. They actually tried to talk me off the ledge. And it was not. Really? It was not. Oh, you can't go write a book about Solomon Brothers. Nobody, nobody even thought about that or even right. cared. It was more, we need you here. And I'm, we're really worried about your mental health. You, you're not going to, I mean, you're not going to be a writer. It was that kind of, they were trying to help me. Uh, so we had kind of these, uh, it would matter to a therapy session with the guys who ran the European office. So you're just yesing them. But I recall reading that you kept a diary most of the time. Was it the whole four years you were at Solomon Brothers? So I wasn't there four years. I was there just shy of three. Okay. And uh, it wasn't a diary the way that, I don't know, you might imagine Jane Austen keeping a diary. But notes and recollections. Well, no, because I was writing about it. Uh I mean, so, yeah, I started taking an interest in in what was specifically going on around me uh, as possible literary material maybe six months before I left, so not the whole time. What I did is, I mean, during the training program, Mm -hmm. I wrote down everything. And and so I had all that that stuff. Right. Um, I actually, the firm... I mean, it, it, it would just, it would, public relations people of Wall Street firms today would not believe how loose it was. When I left, I called and said, can I get some videotapes from the training program just so I get the dialogue right? And, and the, they were like, sure, come here, take some videos. A friend went and got me a couple of the videos I needed. And, uh, and people, uh, Louis Ranieri, who ran the mortgage. The guy who created mortgage back Right, exactly. Uh, helped me. Uh, you know, kind of come to come to terms with what had happened in his department. I went and re- interviewed all the mortgage traders. Everybody was just talk- nobody said, "Oh, you can't write a you can't write a book about us." You know, nobody said. You no, know, it was no there was no free song of, of scandal around it. It was just like ah, it's kind of cool. You're going to write a book, but I mean, good luck, guy, with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Who wants? To, who cares about a book? That, about that was the t- but everybody was couldn't be sweeter about it. So. You leave in 88, right? I got the, Let me make sure I got the dates no, right. And in, the book comes out in 89? No, I left. What, what did I do? That's right. I left in, I waited to the book. But I actually- That's a fast turnaround. I waited, uh, not for me. Uh, I, <laughs> I waited till the bonus hit the bank account in the end of January, early February, 88. Right. I left. I, f- I wrote the book in a year. 
And so the book was done by early 89. It came out the end of 89. Wow, that's amazing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is one of my favorite authors. His name is Michael Lewis, and you're probably familiar with him from books such as Liar's Poker, The Big Short, Moneyball, and more recently, The Undoing Project, a story of two uh, Israeli psychologists who very much change the way we look at cognition and, and thinking, uh, a friendship that changed our minds. So let, let's jump right into this, because first of all, I really enjoyed the book. I found it fascinating. We've had Thaler and Kahneman and other um, behaviorists on the show, and I love that sort of approach to thinking about thinking. And what I really liked was your introduction. In the book, you explain how Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote a review of Moneyball published in the New Republic, and they kind of call you out for saying, hey, this is really all about cognition, and how did you ignore the works of the people who created the science, Amos Tversky and, and Danny Kahneman? So the question is, was this book a little bit of a mea culpa for that oversight in, in Moneyball? You know, it, it, it wasn't, and I wasn't really feeling guilty about it. Maybe that's but, the wrong word. I felt, I felt... Um, I felt uh, I was surprised that there that there had been work in psychology that ex that that explained what was going on in the minds of baseball scouts when they misjudge baseball players, and among other things, mm -hmm. I was surprised I'd never heard of these guys because I did do a master's in economics, but but it was before that all this happened, you know. And when it, when did you when was I, your I, master's? I got in out of the, L, was... the LSC in 80, 85. Okay. And so it, nobody talked about this kind of stuff. You were being taught rational expectations. It was just starting to gear up and, around that and, time. And um and then uh, what happens is I was out drinking with a friend. Uh <laughs> a guy named Dacker Keltner who's uh -huh. a psychologist in the Berkeley uh in the Berkeley at Cal. Uh -huh. And he's who's like a wonderful guy, and it with, and I told him, I said, you know, it's odd that that your field somehow has something to say about this book I wrote. And he said, Danny lives just up the hill. You can oh, go, really? You can go see him, and I, he's a friend. I said, really? And it took me, I took me some time to take him up on that offer, but he introduced me to Danny, and. Who, who, by the way, had won the Nobel Prize for his work the year before Moneyball comes that's out. That's right. That's right. In economics, and I thought that was weird. Nobody said. How is a psychologist winning the Nobel Prize in economics? This nobody, nobody. You look at the descriptions of his Nobel Prize, and it's just, oh, this is normal. It's bizarre. Uh, well, the underlying premise for all of economics is that humans are are rational optimizers, saying, and they're nothing of the sort. I'm not saying it's not deserved. I'm saying that <laughs> if you told him when he was doing his work that he was going to win a Nobel Prize in economics, he'd look at you like you had three heads. Right, but. Uh, what happened really, it was organic. I was kind of curious. I want to meet a guy who won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. That was probably the first thought, was I get to go meet somebody who won a Nobel Prize. Right. And I didn't go up thinking, I'm going to write a book about him. And I got, in, we just became friends. I started following him. I started, I'd see him when he was in town. We'd go on long walks uh, in the hills. And he would talk about his relationship with Amos. And that's what interested me. That I, I thought, th these guys had this incredible love affair. I mean, it wasn't, there was no sex. The sex was having the ideas. Uh, but- it was there was a drama to the their relationship that got me interested. I, I called it an intellectual romance in the review you haven't read. Um, but let you since you mentioned Amos, let let's talk a little bit about him because there's this really bizarre thing you mention in the afterward. 
So, and I'm not giving away the ending to any of this. So both Kahneman and Tversky talk about the role of luck in people's lives. Coincidentally, when you start thinking about doing this book, you had previously taught or coached Amos Tversky's son, Orin? Well, this is where it gets weird, right? I mean, that's really so, th serendipitous. So, well, when at some point, I can't remember when the penny dropped, I realized I had a kid in the, the year I taught uh, writing at Cal, uh -huh. uh, whose last name was Tversky. And uh, he was about my favorite student, and we had a friendship. I'd see him every year for dinner. Uh -huh. And he never mentioned anything about his dad. Oh, yeah, or, my dad is Amos Tversky. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even known who he was anyway, so there would be no reason. Uh, <laughs> and, but then I, I wrote, I remember writing Oren Tversky notes saying, is Amos your dad? And he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I'm toying with the idea of writing a book about his collaboration with Danny. And he goes, uh-oh. Oh, really? <laughs> it was kind of like, he said, "My mom. I'm sure my mom will be happy to help, was basically what he said. But uh, but it was it, it was serendipitous. To but, say the least. So you, you teach Amos Tversky's son. Danny Kahneman lives up the street from you. You spend five years softening up Kahneman in order to do the book. The, he were, was really reluctant. There it, were two it, stages of this assault. The first was um, getting, helping him a little bit. Uh, on his book. On, on his book. Fast and because, slow. Right, because his publisher, his agent, thought it was insane for him to be talking to me about a book before he wrote his. Because you were going to steal the idea. I, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. It was so different, it didn't matter to me. Really? But he said, could you just wait until I'm done with this? And so so that that was the first. So there was never even possibility of doing the thing until after he was done with that. And then he never really ever said, no, you're not going to write a book about us. But he expressed extreme skepticism and uh, and and concern whenever I'd kind of bring it up. And he was, um, I wanted him to want to do it. And I, I never got him there. He was reluctant. I never got him there. At best, he was reluctant. At best. And so, but I got him to the point where he would answer my questions. And uh, and he was, um, he was wonderful about it in the end, but it did, yes. I would say five years, I went and saw him in 07. It was about 2012 when it became very earnest. So here's where I'm going to call you out for a little BS in the book. And you write, you know, the book didn't require a writer as much as a stenographer. And based on everything we've just said, that line is pure nonsense because it's clear from everything you just said, and I'm not blowing smoke, nobody else could have done this book except you. Because of your relationship with Oren Tversky right. and your friendship with Danny, who else could have put these pieces together the way you did? Well, when I said that it required a stenographer, what I meant was the people I was interviewing, these mm -hmm. these 75-year-old, 80-year-old Israeli people, right. intellectuals, what was coming out of their mouths was, it was all I wanted to do is, I, didn't, I don't use a tape recorder. You should have. But every one of them had... Amazing, a, ch right? a chilling war story. Mm -hmm. Women and men. Everything was. Everybody had almost died right. many times in the most dramatic ways. Right. And all of them had exquisite ideas and observations about my main characters. Right. So my, my, what I meant was they did a lot of the work for me. Mm -hmm. The work normally I would have to do insight into the characters. It would have been done for me I, and by by intellectual bulldozers. However, your point is well taken that I was positioned to do it. Right. And when I finally. 
I some the last little hurdle I had to get over was in my own mind. I was afraid of the material because I didn't know. I, I, really? I, well, I didn't know anything about psychology. I didn't know much about Israel. I was walking into a really new territory for me. And I thought, I kept thinking, who who should write this book? I thought, maybe Malcolm Gladwell should write this book. He'd do a great job. He, he's got, a, 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 he's really facile with complicated ideas. He's, he'd be perfect for it. I, I didn't see, it didn't seem like my book. And then I realized that it's got to be my book because the only way you tell the story is if you're inside these people. Right. And no one else is going to get inside these people. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith Incorporated. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Michael Lewis. He is the poet laureate of financial nonfiction uh, and Wall Street related narratives. Uh, let's jump right into some of the really interesting books you've written in the past and, and some of the responses to them. Um, I was watching uh, 60 Minutes when you were talking about Flash Boys, and you came out and said the markets were rigged and all hell breaks loose. What what was the pushback like to that? Well, you know, it's funny because it didn't even occur to me I was saying anything controversial. I thought everybody knew it. They're, they're rigged <laughs> and, and they've pretty much always been rigged. <laughs> and but the way they it was just the way they're rigged has changed. Right. And uh, really, it's it's so if you sit with the people who at IEX the the exchange I was writing about and have them show you in real time kind of what's going on in the market, you say, well, that's rigged. Uh, so I didn't think I it was kind of surprised that it generated the response it did, but the, the blowback, it's the book that was the most unpleasant to publish. Really? Yes. In that, by the way, fascinating book. I love the opening about the line of sight with running the fiber optic cables and, and how milliseconds make a difference. So the, the, it was the most unpleasant to publish because it made so many people so angry who were angry, who, who were going to try to do something about it. And the reason was, it took me about a moment to realize it, what the reason was. It's the first time and only time I've written a book that was going to take money away from Wall Street people. That, that, it, that it, was, it, was, it came as news uh, to some extent, the story I told. The guys who were my main characters had news in their hands that they didn't, hadn't given anybody right. else. And uh, unlike the big shorter liars poker, um, the money hadn't all been made. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't writing something retrospectively. I was writing something that was going on that if it was shut down would cost people billions of dollars. And, it, and all of a sudden, people are furious. They're hiring lobbyists to go to Washington sure. and spread stuff on the internet. And it was like being on the receiving end of a political campaign. Uh, a very, it, it, was, it was a crude and kind of, if you knew anything about the subject, kind of intellectually embarrassing one. But nevertheless, it was it was just weird to have people so hostile. So you, you go on TV, you get into a debate with the CEO of the Bats Exchange. He says a bunch of things that turn out to be not so true. Ultimately, he steps down from the position. I said you essentially uh, are to blame for him getting fired. What other crazy sort of stuff came out of that book? We know Brad Katsuyama, the, mm-hmm. the, who was a guest on the show and was quite delightful. The main character of the book was on that CNBC show with me, 
And he's the reason the guy from Bats. He called him out. He called him out. And he had the the ability to call him out in a way I did not. Because once you get into the weeds of the subject, unless you are the world's authority defending yourself against whatever... And Brad is. He is the world's authority. Absolutely. There's no doubt about uh, that. And so, um, what other stuff? It's mainly like calls from lawyers. Really? Oh, yeah. Threatening calls or, hey, Mike, need a lawyer? No. (laughs) (laughs) But also... um, just, just the idea that people are being hired. People have now jobs to attack a book. That that just was weird and grease balls. I mean, people you just would not really you wouldn't think anybody would want on their side who are. I mean, transparently kind of like making it up as they go along. Uh, that that was just an odd experience. I've never had anything like that. I mean, you would think maybe Solomon Brothers would have done something like that after Liar's Poker, but nothing, yeah. nothing. They were great. They're kind of. I mean, there was people were upset. Some people, but they didn't. They they wouldn't have done something like that. It, it it felt the world of big shot Wall Street people has become much more um, uh, sneaky and manipulative and and dark in the sense that it, Brad Katsuyama points this out. He says it's amazing how people think it's just the done thing to create a propaganda campaign filled sure. with lies because the lies travel so fast and the truth is complicated. And so you can just, you can just paper the, you can paper the internet and, with, with all this nonsense and nobody knows the difference between this, this, this statement and this statement. Well, thank, uh, thank goodness something like that would never happen in a political no, campaign or well, anything so, that matters. So, I, you know, <laughs> that was my experience of seeing, I, I've always tended to assume that like most people would look and say, well, Clearly he's lying. Clearly he's been hired to say this crap. Right. And uh, it's it, it, that's not how it works. Uh, it's people just say, oh, there must be two stories there. The classic false equivalence. Yeah. Well, right. the earth is round. The earth is flat. They both make that's, good points. Yes, yes. And and uh, on the other hand, Joe says the earth is flat. Right. And uh, You can see it's flat. You, yeah. know, you can't really see any curvature. Oh, it is flat. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's, but that is how... That's how it felt. And I thought, at some point, I thought, you know, unless I devote my life full time to, to, to waging a, a counter campaign, which I don't have the time or inclination to do. Or interest, I would Or imagine. interest. No, that I was, that, that it just, it was a, it, it, that, thank God that I had characters who had a big interest in doing so. That if IAX wasn't around and, mm-hmm. and with serious backers, I mean, all of this would have just, I'd look, I'd look like a, I'd look like a, uh, a quack. Uh, I'd look like a crank who wrote this book. Um, so you've written enough really interesting things about unusual circumstances that I think most people give you the, the benefit of the doubt. Um, not most people at the SEC, <laughs> really not most people who are paid not to give me the benefit of the doubt. So I think that, um, uh, that the, that public policy would not have had any, would, would not have responded at all to the story if it were, even if it were completely true, unless there were an agent out there, namely IAX, pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. That's amazing. And uh, so, so it's just disturbing. It just that you think the truth will set you free, and it's really clear what's true. And nobody, you know, it, it doesn't get to people in the way that you would think. Um, that's so a, that's unbelievable. It's, so that's that was my. That was my risk. That was the most, it was the most disturbing publishing experience. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is author Michael Lewis. Most recently, he wrote the book, The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. 
but he's also written such classic Wall Street books as Liar's Poker, Moneyball, The Blind Side, Flash Boys, The Big Short. You did a book on the election right after the Losers, campaign. it's now called. They, that, but what was it? That wasn't the original trail title. Trail Fever. But trail, that's that wasn't was. my title. <laughs> well, I want to call it Losers because I followed all the people who lost. Uh, so, well, by the way, was there an original title for The Big Short or was it Always the Always Big Always the Short? Big Short. All right, I'll, I'll share something with you later that I think you'll appreciate. So let's talk a little bit about your writing process. So where do you begin? Uh, I know you have an office at home with a, a desk and a computer. Do you just sit down and say, let me start banging something out? How do these ideas germinate? Social interaction in the beginning. Really? Yeah. So I don't, I'm not a novelist and my material is not just in my head. It's out there in the world. And so I spend, I spend three times as much time gathering the material as I do actually writing it. So a typical book takes a year and a half to report and research, maybe a bit more, and six months to write. Is and it research, write, research, write, or research, 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 write, write, write? It's nothing but research for a long time. Mm -hmm. And when I start writing, I'm usually still doing bits and pieces of research. And in the end, I'm doing no research and I'm just writing. So it's the writing of it is, I don't want to say it's an afterthought, but by well, the time- you're constantly by the, writing yeah, by the, That's right? right. I'm constantly thinking about how the story goes. And by the time I sit down to actually start a book, I at least think I know exactly where it ends. Like I had the last sentence to this book in my head. From the beginning. Pretty much. And I usually have a title. Sometimes I don't. And it like drives me crazy because I think that- it crystallizes for you what the book's about to have the title. There's a buzz in my head that bothers me if I don't have the title in my head. So it takes so, so, sometimes it takes a while to find that title, but usually I have that. So I had the blind side, I had the big short. The Undoing Project came pretty early as a, as a title. Undoing what we previously thought about cognition. Yes, and it was also what they were working on when they broke up. They had a project they had tentatively titled The Undoing Project. Mm -hmm. And so, and I like the phrase. So... Anyway, the and then when the writing starts, always goes in slightly different ways than I imagined. Things drop that I thought were important. You see them Hold. in print and they no longer resonate the way Or I don't even get them into print. I, I get to the point in the story where I thought they belonged and I realize this is just boring mm -hmm. or this is unnecessary. So f things fall away. There's a lot of that. Not, and, and sometimes internally, things swell. All of a sudden, things I thought were... 1,500 words on the page we're, end up being 8,000 words on the page. And it's I, it, this book surprised me that way, that things, everything that I, whole sections did fall away and things that I thought were short ended up being long. So that's a, that raises a really interesting point. When, when you're playing with an idea, do you know from the beginning, uh, this is a, a Bloomberg View post, this is a longer magazine story, oh, this is a full-blown book? At what point do you have a sense that, hey, there's legs here? A column of the length of a Bloomberg View thing is always just a column. Right, I, six, eight hundred words. It's an and, opinion. It's, a, it's right. usually a humorous take on something. Right. And uh, I've never had one of those become something I didn't think it was. But magazine pieces sometimes blow up and get much, much bigger. Moneyball started as a magazine piece. Because mm -hmm. I, I just had a question for the Oakland A's, like, how are you winning? Right. And I thought, well, that'll be a cute little story. Actually, it wasn't even going to be a long magazine piece. And after a day with the front office, I went, oh, my God. There's something, <laughs> There's something big here. I don't know what it is, but it's not a short magazine piece. It took me six weeks to figure out what it was and just talking to him. And then right. another year to report it. I got to assume, so if people who are not familiar with the story, Oakland A's, one of the smallest budgets in the entire uh, baseball league. And suddenly they start a new approach to 
Let's throw away the old nonsense of evaluating players. Well, so they didn't talk they about any of that. You, all you saw as a fan was, wow, they look a little strange. They look like a beer league softball team. Right. They're all these kind of fat guys who hit home runs and can't catch the ball. <laughs> and they're winning all these games. How is this happening? Right. And uh, and then you when you see the budgets, like they're paying for their players a fifth of what the Yankees are, and they're winning as many games. If the market's efficient, that makes no sense. Right. The, the Yankees should buy all the best players and just beat the A's. So what's going on there? And it was a market efficiency story. It's like something's wrong there. Right. And I thought there would be a, a, an easy explanation. I didn't know what it was going to be. And the explanation was very involved. It, and and the, the big thing was the A's front office had never been asked the question because the sports journalists we're not at all focused on this on the money side of things. They just thought, oh, you know, some have some money, some don't have some money, but they didn't think in terms of like market efficiency. And so Billy Bean, who ran the Oakland A's, had never had a chance to download on anybody all these thoughts he had about the how screwed up the evaluation system. That's impossible. So I had so it was completely fresh material. He said to me, "No one's asked that question." Were the sports journalists drinking from the same Kool Aid as everybody else? They in just the didn't league? think it was interesting. You know, it really is a matter of what you find interesting. Right. It, it, what was interesting is who they traded for, or uh, whether they won last night, or who hit. Not the here's run. a giant philosophical shift in the way baseball teams should be assembled. Yeah. We don't care about that. Tell me about your new second baseman. In fairness, it wasn't as if the Oakland front office was trying to tell their story. They just, no one asked them for it. And they had not been approached by anybody saying, I want to know what you're doing here because something's going on. Except the owner of the Boston Red Sox, the new owner of the Boston Red Sox, who was trying to John figure Henry. Out. Yeah, he he knew something was. He was a financial guy. A quant. Something's who, going on there, right? And and so he was already sniffing around a little bit. So but, not a coincidence that a financial writer recognized the, the, the so that's statistical absolute. side of this, and a quant running another baseball team said, "Hey, there's some something here." That's right. That's that. That's not a coincidence. And the A's were. It was cathartic for them to just talk, have someone to talk to about it because it was what they. Thought about all the time is how you make your resources go further, how you find bargains in baseball, what's going on in the mind of baseball scouts, what's wrong with old fashioned baseball strategies. All they were rethinking the game. So, Moneyball became Billy Bean's confessional to you. It wasn't so much a confessional because that implies that he feels uh, all right, maybe yeah. that's the wrong No, no, uh, it was it was Billy B, it, but it was Moneyball becomes he tells his story an outlet for Billy to kind of get things off his chest mm -hmm. about what he's seen. Yes, he tells a story. It took him a little while to get comfortable telling me a story, but not that long. You're pretty good at ingratiating yourself with people to get them to, to come out and, and speak with you. You know, I try to let them get to know me a bit so they feel more comfortable. And the truth is that if I'm going to do a long thing, a long piece of writing about someone, I have to genuinely feel basically positively disposed to them. That if I actually thought he was a creep or dishonest or whatever. I just, I wouldn't want to spend the time with him necessary for the book. So it becomes a kind of easy relationship because he senses I basically like him and he says I'm basically a sane person and, and he says I'm not going to do anything really creepy and so there's a, tr a trust develops and it's just a very broad trust I don't let anybody see what I write about them or anything but at some point he starts to feel comfortable with me and I'm going to tell my story to somebody might as well be him that's what you're gunning for nobody's ever going to feel completely comfortable with it you just say well someone's going to get this story might as well be him let's stay with the idea of a magazine story that would have or could have become a book in 1999, in the Sunday New York Times magazine, you published How the Eggheads Cracked. It's a 9,000-word opus about long-term capital management. My, now, for, my former boss. Oh, really? John Merriweather. Uh, that's that's a, right. Right, right. So so the question is, and with all due respect 
to Roger Lowenstein. I, I love when, when Genius Failed. He was a guest on the show. But really, you could have written that book as well. Yes. Why didn't that become a book? Because when I went back, when I'm researching this and I'm looking at that, my head of research says, hey, check out this article. I'm like, wow, this could easily have been a Michael Lewis book. I turned the question on its head. Why even bother to write that? Because... I really thought I was done writing about Wall Street in a big way. Uh-huh. And I, you never want to write the same book twice. And while that- Just w- too close in time yeah, to Liar's Poker? Yeah, yeah. A decade. It was, it was a decade, but I just thought- Been there, done that. Been there, done that. The question that I actually asked was, is this worth doing? And I thought, well, you know, these guys are being demonized in the press. Nobody really understands what they did. I kind of understand what they did. And they can explain it to me in a way I can explain it to people. So it just like- take some of the the weirdness out of the environment around them. So I just thought it would be it would be useful to for, for me to go in, have them explain it to me and then explain it to a, a broader audience. And they didn't exactly trust me because I had written liar's poker. I mean that's that's trust is they they were some of them were irritated about that. Really? Not irritated. Because a lot of the Sally guys. Yeah, well they were they were my immediate colleagues. Hans Hofenschmidt? Hofschmidt. Hofschmidt. So yeah. I got to ask you about that. So you, he became your frame of reference for, <laughs> did I do the right thing leaving yeah, Sally? No, it was really fun. Well, we kind of tracked through the training program together, yeah. right? And we ended up kind of in a similar sort of role. He was in the foreign exchange department. I was with John Merriweather's group. Uh, and we were kind of getting paid the same amount of money. And I did kind of think, well, if I'd stayed at Solomon Brothers, I'd kind of done how Hans did. And uh, he killed it. He made a ton of money. He put it into long-term it, capital. He was putting fifty million dollar no, bonuses, and then it all and goes I, to- up to that point. I thought, Jesus, did I did I make a mistake becoming a writer? I, I never this. really felt that way, but it was like he was my measure of the opportunity cost. So the line in when the eggheads cracked after LTCM blows up and his tens of millions of dollars go to zero. You're tracking this, and you say, "I once again was satisfied to be paid by the word." <laughs> Do you yes, I don't remember writing it, but it's absolutely true. I felt that way. <laughs> Thank God I became a writer. So Financially sound decision. For people who would like to find more Michael Lewis, you can go to either his website, which is Michael Lewis. I don't have a website. Michael Lewis writes some... The, the, my publisher has a website. If you, for you. Yeah. But Barnes & Noble, Amazon, right. wherever fine books are sold, you can find the works of Michael Lewis. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America, North America. Member FDIC.